Well, I hope you had a wonderful time at Thanksgiving. You ate lots of turkey and gravy and probably slept. Uh, how many of you at least took a nap after turkey? Yes, that is so good. Now, I, I think about the reality of being in the context of worship and the context of the church and being able to enjoy uh, the opportunity for Thanksgiving. But Thanksgiving comes and goes, and all of a sudden Christmas is upon us. And so for me, uh, I've, I've often loved Thanksgiving uh, on my way to Christmas. It's like an on-ramp. That's what it is for me. Thanksgiving is an on-ramp of Thanksgiving to a celebration of what we get to partake in in the joy of Christmas. How many here already have started to listen to Christmas music? Oh, see, this isn't my kind of people. How many of you even set up decorations? My tree is up, okay? I mean, it starts and you begin to start uh, celebrating this reality of, of the joy of the upcoming reality of the coming of Christ. Well, why do we do that? Because there's something about the coming of Christ that displays and, and, and with inside of us helps us celebrate this aspect, hope. That there is hope in the midst of all things that we wrestle with, in the midst of all of a world that is depraved and struggling with sin, there is hope in the Savior. There is hope in the one who would come to make all things right. In fact, hope is such a powerful element that the Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, in verse 13, when he says, uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. You know, there's something in the midst of the most darkest hours of our life and the most complex situations where we just want to know, is there hope that this might turn out differently than I imagine? Well, hope is a powerful element, the life of a Christian. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his book uh, uh, entitled Mere Christianity, listen to what he has to say. He says, hope is one of those theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to, an e to, to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. And since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have, they've become so ineffective in this one. He says, sadly, many of us are so tethered to this world and the things that it offers that we scarcely take thought of the world to come, yet is precisely by reflecting often on the joys, beauties, and satisfactions of eternal life in the world to come that we find a hope that empowers us to live fully for Christ today. There's something beautiful about hope, and in fact, all throughout uh, a good majority of, the, uh, of Christianity, especially back all the way till the time of the, uh, the medieval period, where they celebrated what is understood as Advent. And Advent is simply uh, the celebration of the coming of the birth of Jesus Christ within the Christian church. And every day, uh, or in every Sunday leading up to the Sunday where you would celebrate Christ's birth, they would light a candle to represent various components of this longing and this hope. 
Well, that first candle that would often lit, and this is such a family reminder because growing up, uh, at least in, for Michelle and I, in, in uh, her side of, of the family, every single year, all the Sundays preceding this, the family would get together and we would celebrate the advent of Christ. We would have a formal meal. We would read a various component of scripture, something that would relegate our minds to think about the coming of Christ and we would celebrate, and we would light that first candle. And that candle of the advent was for, the first one was the candle of hope. And it was often titled the prophecy candle. A way to think about all the prophecies that would come true about this coming Messiah. And Isaiah certainly does that. And we want to understand this morning his message that he gives to us, which is, uh, we think about it, this from desperation to delight is where he moves us. And so if you would, take your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 9, if you're, if you're not already there. Many theologians will look at the book of Isaiah, and many of the prophets, by the way, and they were always in tandem with some reflection of things entitled words of comfort and words of reproof. And if you've spent any time in any of the major or minor prophets, which I know there's a group of men on Saturday morning who are doing just that at this point, what you recognize is there's words of comfort, but they often come at the end of the word, uh, and then the words of reproof come before the words of comfort. Because you've got to have a reason to comfort them, and the prophets had to give hard messages to the people through the time that they served. And often for Isaiah, we can understand the magnitude of one of these major prophets whose treaty expands a, a, a massive number of different kingdoms, which we will get into in a moment. But what we do recognize is that all throughout the prophets, it's not unique to Isaiah, although we will see it in Isaiah today. Words of reproof and words of comfort and hope. And as we move closer and closer to Christmas, and as you think about celebrating uh, the Christmas and thinking about Advent, this is an opportunity for, for you this week, maybe to think a little bit more heavily about the prophetic nature of the coming of the Messiah. Spend some time in some of the prophets. Spend some time thinking about Isaiah 9 and, and, and collecting your thoughts on why this was so significant. Go to various different prophets that are going to explain these passages and, and see how faithful God was to his promises. Because the promise of the celebration of the hope of Christ permeated the Jewish culture. By the time that, that the child was to be born and the star would have gone up, there, there are all kinds of, of Jewish scholars who would, have, who would have thought, well, listen, something is about to happen. How do we know that? Is because even when they were coming to the temple, texts in the New Testament say, and they were waiting for this culmination and they knew it was close. They were measuring all of these prophetic timetables. Well, for Isaiah, I really think he, in this text that we're in Isaiah, in Isaiah 9 and through the entirety of the book, is really to help us with this, this main thought. That while desperation and despair are present, help and hope are on the horizon. There's something that hope does, whether you're going through adversity, 
whether you're laying there on your deathbed or whether you're struck with a significant illness in your life, there is something inside of you that your heart and something that your heart does when all of a sudden you realize there's hope for me. This life is not all there is to offer. I'm going to go and be with my Savior. I'm, I may leave certain things behind, but I know that no one can take my hope away. That is the hope that, that you and I live with as we think and, and we think about the gospel. The prophets often model and mirror this kind of message. Despair and desperation and all of these things because hope and help were real in the eyes of the people. Now, contemporaries of the book of Isaiah, if you think about these other prophets, like Hosea and Micah as well, you come to these other time periods in Israel's history, write down this particular text, don't read it while I'm preaching, but 2 Kings chapter 16 describes the context which we will talk just briefly about in the book of Isaiah. But think about the magnitude, for example, of Isaiah. When we think about this first point that we walked through this morning, that what was the predicament of Israel? Can, because in order to understand the hope that you and I have in Jesus Christ, then we have to begin to understand why was this such an important facet to the life of the Jewish individual and to Isaiah the prophet? Because there was all kinds of despair, desperation, and the people in God's eyes had become despised. Now, let's think about Isaiah for a moment. Here you have a, a major prophet in the Old Testament, which, which spans the time period of somewhere around 734, 32 BC, all the way down to somewhere around 700 to some would argue 680 at the time of Sennacherib when Jerusalem was going to eventually be destroyed. And he expanded, and you can see that. Turn, if you would, just back just a few pages since you're only in chapter 9. You notice this, and keep your Bible handy because we want to go to a few different texts. But here's what Isaiah 1, verse 1 says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of now four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now this is quite a long span of a, of a prophet, which is one of the reasons why the magnitude of his content in the book of Isaiah is so large. There was so much going on. Now notice Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3. Look at the predicament of the people. He says this, he says to the people, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Now this is a pretty harsh indictment, by the way, to the people of Israel and the people of Judah, primarily here to, to, to the people who have now gone astray. Think of what they lived in, the people during at different time periods came from a level of remembering the Solomonic dynasty of which the kingdom of Israel had expanded to a level that no one would have ever imagined. Remembering the peace and the prosperity only to know that the moment that Solomon died that one of his sons and another individual had split the kingdom to north and south. 
And now the predicament religiously of the people, now notice this indictment. I mean, this is not very uh, comforting words. You're as bad as a dumb animal. That's what he's saying. You're as bad as an ignorant animal because even animals know how to go to where the master wants him to go. I was shocked by this growing up uh, watching my father-in-law who was a dairy farmer and would put the corn out in the various stanchions that they would have and they would bring in the animals and all of them knew their place. He wouldn't have to coax them in there. He would bring them in and put a little food down and they'd automatically go right to their stanchion. And what Isaiah is saying to the Israelite people was, you are worse than an animal. Even an animal knows their master, but my Israel, who I have called, my Israel, who I have, I have carved out, not because you were a great people, but because I loved you, you don't know me, and you don't because you don't know me, you don't understand. You don't even understand the severity of the predicament that you're in. Notice as he follows in verse four. Ah, sinful nation, Isaiah says, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you, will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. And the whole heart is faint. What he's saying is that there is a whole person response to the rebellion that was going on in the life of the people of Israel. They don't know their God. It impacted the way that they thought. It impacted what they loved. It impacted the choices that they had. The people, now notice this, this is remarkable. In, in Isaiah chapter one, verses 10 to 31, and you can read this section, but you would not like it if you were a Jewish individual hearing this from Isaiah. Notice these words, and you'll, you'll, hear, you'll see them when you read through this on your own. You, Israel and Judah, you, you are as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah who don't know their God, their head and their heart, you are sick. You are so sick and filthy with rebellion against me that I have to deal with you. And Isaiah comes and brings this kind of perspective to the people of Israel. It's somewhat, and we read this, and you, and you at least in the first five chapters, you think, oh my, that's a lot of doom and gloom. It is. Because Isaiah is setting the stage for what would come in the celebration of the Messiah. By the time you get to, uh, to chapter 7 in the book of Isaiah, most people understand this as describing it as the book of Emmanuel. This one who would come and be God with us. Why would he bring this reality, because I think if you are any Israelite living during this time period and you heard this major prophet come and he was living and breathing and he was, and he was helping and serving in the way God wanted him, you'd ask yourself the question, if you were doing what you wanted, living the way you wanted to live, you'd ask this question. Isaiah, what right do you have to tell me the way I should live what I should do, and what I should long for. 
I like my life. I'll do with it just as I please to the degree that I want to enjoy the world. You have no right. And I think this begs the, even the way that the book of Isaiah is put together because it's very different in the sense of the way that we look at, at the way the other calls to ministry, such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who start with, here's God's calling for my life, and you don't get the call of Isaiah until Isaiah 6. Because he's anticipating this question, what right do you have to say to me that this is who we are. And he lays out his credentials in Isaiah chapter 6 and says, in the, in the time that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You skip down to verse number eight, and he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say these things to this people. I don't know about you, but after you realize the predicament, if you were Isaiah, could you say that? Here I am, and my ministry will be all about proclaiming and preaching to a, to a nation who does want what they want to do what they want to do. They want to believe what they want to believe. They don't want to know their God, and I'll go, and I'll send this, and I'll give this hard message. I think that says something about Isaiah, doesn't it? Men who are called to lead often have to do hard things. Men and women who lead at various capacities have to do hard things. But we cannot shy away from doing the things that are most necessary. Now, why, why is the idea of a prophet so such a significant facet in the life of Israel? Well, if you, if you recognize anything about prophetic ministry, there's a couple facets of a prophet that you'll, you'll tend to characterize by the nature of this office. If you ask the question, what does it mean to be a prophet? I don't think the Israelite people were scarce on words or the first five books of the Bible were vacant in helping us understand their prophetic role in ministry. You can find that in Deuteronomy 18, where they laid out the rules of components to distinguish between a true prophet and a false prophet, which means there had to be a measuring stick by which you could say, here's a good one and here's a bad one. And Isaiah was good. Well, what was their role? Well, they would prophesy. Well, what does that mean? It means they would foretell things. They could say, here's what the Lord said would happen X number of years into the future, and it would come to pass. And they would not only foretell, but they would also preach what we understand as forthtelling. And this is one of the realities that makes a pastor's ministry different, which is why we wouldn't say our pastor's a prophet. He preaches and forthtells, but he does not foretell. 
I didn't take anybody's life this previous week and they didn't come to my office and I didn't say to them on you know, January 1st of 2025 in the very near future, this is what is going to happen to your life. Didn't happen. But for the life of Israel, the prophetic ministry of the major and minor prophets hinged on this reality to be able to distinguish good from bad prophets. People and nations and even their own kings who would accept other forms of counsel. And the prophet's ministry was both foretelling and forthtelling these kinds of truths. And Isaiah said, I'll be that one who will go. I'll be the one who will say the hard message. Well, what kind of hard context was Isaiah in, by the way? I mean, here... The, Sol- the Solomonic dynasty had now ended. Now, instead of one unified whole people who would worship the living God, who would come to his temple in Jerusalem, who would offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and otherwise and sin offerings, the people had now split. The northern Israel, Israel tribes, whose, whose, whose major city was Samaria, and now you're Judah and Benjamin, who was now in the south, encompass the southern kingdom. Notice this, that every time in history that you recognize a vacancy in a world empire, somebody is in the background looking to take advantage of it. It happens then, it happens in every, in every, every world, of, of every point of every time in every continent, that when there is a vacancy, there is a vacuum for power. The Solomonic dynasty was over. The Israelite kingdoms all of a sudden had experienced a level outside of that unification of prosperity. And yet they started to forsake God. They started to accept other things. They didn't totally wipe out the people in the land. And all of those things that you wished would have happened in Joshua were now plaguing them in the present, in the time period of Isaiah. The, the, the entire the empire that was now looking to fill that, that vacuum of power, which is this looming eastern empire of the Assyrian by, a name, by an individual by the name of Tiglath-Pileser. Israel in the north knew they were coming. There was two kingdoms, and you can read about this in 2 in Kings 16, that Pekah, the Israelite king of the north, all of a sudden formed an alliance with Rezin from Syria. No, mix up the two because they're two different empires, Syria and Assyria. And Israel in the north said, you know what? We know how to take care of this eastern empire and this eastern power and this guy who we know is coming. They said, you know what? We'll form an alliance together and then we'll try to hold him at bay because he wants this land. It was, the, it was the trade route to the north and the south. Everything flowed from there by which you could tax everybody who could come into the region, which is why all of the world powers wanted the region of Palestine. It was a cash cow because you could tax anybody you wanted and all goods that would come in and out of this region. And Israel in the north knew that their time period was, was in jeopardy. And so they formed the alliance with Rezin from Syria. And they thought, you know what? We want to 
we want Judah to join us because if we now have all three of us, now we could hold off the Assyrian Empire from expanding to the west. And Judah, who at the time period was King Ahaz, and you remember that even in Judah, much like Israel, these wicked, wicked kings, and Ahaz was one of them. He did not do the things that his, uh, he did exactly what his, his father did. He didn't do the things that were right. He started to rebel against, these, uh, against the religious components of the law, the orders of worship, and he started to just give way to say, it doesn't matter anymore. Well, they come to Ahaz and say, why don't you form an alliance with us? And, a- and, and Ahaz says, no. And this is where you get In Isaiah 6, he says, where God comes to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, ask for a sign. And Ahaz, at least in his stubborn rebellion, says, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to let you tell me whatever you think it's supposed to be. And he says, you didn't ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign. The sign is there will be one who will be born in a manger, one whose name will be Emmanuel, who will be God with us. And because Ahaz doesn't want to uh, uh, form an alliance with the northern kingdom in Syria, he sends word to Tiglath-Pileser to say, hey, you've got these troublemakers in the north. Could you imagine the audacity of seeing your Israelite brothers from the north coming to destroy you and destroy Jerusalem and take it over after you were once united Knowing that this was in jeopardy, Ahaz sends word to the Assyrian emperor and he comes and he rescues them and that's exactly what you see in Isaiah 5 and 6 and 7 and all through 8, that Assyria would come in and overflow the banks of Jerusalem. He gives this picture to say he's going to take over everything and yet Judah still remained at various components and Isaiah was trying to warn Israel to the north, and Judah's rebellion. Don't leave the ways of the Lord. And this is why it's so remarkable when you get to a king that Isaiah was under when you have Hezekiah, because Hezekiah's father was not about following the religious components of the law and following the Lord, but Hezekiah began to, to form all these religious reformations during the time of Israel. And he stayed the empires until eventually in, in, in 580 B.C., all of a sudden, Jerusalem was ransacked. God uses people as means to display his hope that he promised that is for sure to happen. While you and I are never going to be prophets the way Isaiah was a prophet, we ought to be foretellers of the tr- we ought to be foretellers of the truth how many times are you looking to spread the hope of the gospel of jesus christ in the midst of your life in the midst of a world that is filled with rebellion in the midst of people perhaps people you know it could even be children that you have raised who say you know what i don't care about god anymore that was going on in the life of israel Why was there such a necessity for hope? Because fathers and mothers and families were being broken apart 
And clans were doing whatever they wanted, and they weren't following the Lord. And Isaiah is trying to bring them back to understand that hope remains in the Lord, even though Israel had rebelled against their God. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah introduces this reality of the day of the Lord. A day of coming wrath that will happen in, in some time in the future. That all Israel will be brought to judgment in order to help them understand that there is one who can save. Even Isaiah's children, by the way, were named with these special names by Isaiah to recognize and even, even to recognize Israel's condition. They were to be assigned to them. Even Isaiah's uh, first son, Shear Jashub, which meant a remnant shall return. Simply by the names of even his children, he tried to convey as a prophet the, the hope of the people of Israel. Look at Isaiah 8 for a moment and look at verse 16. This is interesting. This is, here's Isaiah saying to, to, to those who were under his teaching, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his, his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah, all the way down through his children, was modeling and proclaiming the truth that the Messiah would come. There, is, that there, could, there would be no longer this despair. He says, bind up these testimonies. Don't forget them. Which is why I think Advent is such a special time period. Because we ought to look at these times and we're preparing our minds for the celebration that we, that we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It ought to be something that is in our hearts, hope that we cling to. Well, that's all about what the future hope was. It turned from all of these perspectives of, of desperation and despair and it was all about the future, the hope and the help that, and the one who would, who would be the provider. Now look at, at, at verse number nine. Isaiah chapter nine, verse number one. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. For the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. I can only imagine that in the midst of this predicament that Israel and Judah were in, and all the looming things that were at stake, with rising world powers trying to hold them at bay, it's kind of like, well, we, it's hard for us to relate, right? Not so much anymore. When you turn on the news and you hear someone saying, this empire or that nation and that nation, God can use any nation to whatever degree he so chooses, even if he chooses to use other nations to chastise his own nation. God can do whatever he chooses. And what is his motive? To see people in pain? No. To pull them back to the hope that they have in the one that they can trust in the Messiah. 
It is no different for us. Our hope cannot be in a level of peace and prosperity. Our hope can only come from Jesus Christ alone. But in the midst of these families, don't you, wouldn't you find yourself wanting to hope that things would be different? A father or a mother who perhaps saw their children now grow up and get married and now we're raising their children in a way that was nothing like monotheism and faithfulness to their God, to the God of Israel. And all of a sudden you're trying to say to your grandkids, like, God matters. I know what, like, I've got to tell you the truth because your parents don't want to hear this anymore. That was real in the life of the people of Israel. Hope for your children. Hope for circumstances. Hope for various trials that you were going through. All these elements of hopes and and what Isaiah wanted to do is restore the heart of these people to remember their God and to love him and to celebrate that that he was not over with the nation of Israel. He would draw them back to himself. Is this interesting, the language of, of this particular uh, segment of Isaiah chapter 9. Take your, take, uh, keep your finger in Isaiah, but turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, you see this in verses number 12 to 17, when Jesus begins his ministry. He says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, that the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. See, the reality is, is the people in the north who had, who had formed the alliance, the people of Israel who had now taken up the world, and even Ahaz in the, in the southern kingdom. It's so interesting that, that Tiglath-Pileser comes and wipes out, uh, wipes out the northern kingdom, and all of a sudden Ahaz travels to the north, and he sees an altar, and he says, oh my goodness, this is an altar I've got to have. I'm going to get its exact measurements. And here's what you see. The wickedness of Ahaz in the southern kingdom of Judah, bringing back the false worship and idolatry to the place of Jerusalem, where only they should be worshiping the God of heaven and his coming son. That's how despicable this came. Their land would have been a land that would have been described as darkness. Darkness in the sense of spiritual darkness. This was the crossroads between between Israel and the other nations. And now they were combining and syncretizing their belief patterns with other groups of people. And he says, these people are living in darkness. And where do we find Jesus' ministry so heavily concentrated? Galilee. Where the, where the people of Israel went to the north, the crossroads of the nations, the place of darkness, and Isaiah says, there is one who would dispel this kind of darkness. And he says in verse two of Isaiah nine, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has been shown. I mean, think about the precursor of him saying this and then what would happen when, this, when the gospel was opened up and Jesus was offering the gospel in Matthew, in his ministry in Matthew 4, says to people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all kinds of people out of this spiritually dark place were turning to Christ. Verse number three in Isaiah 9 says, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You think, why is he speaking in past tense? It's because in the mind of God in inspiration, these are as good as done. In God's mindset, he's saying, this is going to happen and it is as good as already done. And so when the prophet speaks his words, he could use them in the past tense to say that the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light because it was going for sure to happen. Verse 4, he says, For the yoke of this burden and the staff of, of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Well, that's a really great thought if, if you're thinking of their time period, isn't it? What did you long for in Israel? I don't want people coming in and taking my home. I don't want people taking my children and sending them off to Assyria. I don't want people coming in and, and taking them off to Babylon. You wanted peace. Well, no wonder this was so heavily instilled in the life of the Jewish people that by the time Jesus came, they, they didn't fully recognize this idea of the two comings. They just longed for the oppression to be lifted from another world power who was telling them what to do. And in Jesus and in his miracle working ability, they saw the relief of oppression, the one who would come according to Isaiah, where they could all burn their garments of, of being a warrior and they could beat all of their weapons into tools that they would use in the garden because they wouldn't have to fear because the peace would have been experienced. Isaiah 9 gives us that reality. You longed for it. Well, how is that longing achieved? Which is why, verse 6, he continues to say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And who will do this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts is the one who will do this. None other than the king of heaven whom you rejected who still loves you, who still cares for you, who sees your troubles, who sees your children, who sees your families, who sees the world empires, who sees destruction, who sees spiritual darkness, who will bring us the hope we long for and the peace 
we so desire. The zeal of the Lord. Christian, don't think by any means that you could ever be more zealous for the things of God than God himself. God is so zealous to have his name known. The entirety of the Old Testament conquest and all the prophetic ministry was to help them remember God wants his name known to the nations. There is a redeemer who would come. There is a hope that would remain. When you think about all the world powers and things that could happen, Isaiah brings us all the way to Isaiah 59 verse 20 when he says this statement, a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares the Lord. How can we experience the lifting of this spiritual darkness and despair to, ha- to be filled with help and the hope? Guess what it is? It's recognize your need for repentance and know when you have transgressed against the Lord Almighty. Because he comes to make all things right. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 to 3 says this statement at the very closer to the end of his book. Arise, he says, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. The darker the time that we live in, the greater the desire we often have for the hope that can only be found in the coming King, Jesus Christ. Don't look to a presidential campaign in this next season to provide you with what only God can give you through his Son, Jesus Christ. Don't look to a political, a political party to be that rejuvenated hope for you. It is in Jesus Christ alone who will bring peace and righteousness and justice to the nations. It is this coming Messiah that will make all things right. He will bring hope again to your family, to the brokenhearted, to those who have been been afar off from him and have rebelled from him. Don't, Christian, lose the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Don't lose the hope that the gospel message is as powerful and potent as it has ever been. Thinking that, oh, this person will never accept the truth of the gospel. They can because the Lord loves them. He has come to save their soul. Parent, mom, and dad, don't ever lose hope that people or children that you have that are going away and being straying from the truth that they couldn't come back. Don't lose hope that your greatest desires, your deepest longing for help and hope will be realized at the second coming of Jesus Christ when he fulfills 
the Davidic covenant, and he sits on the throne of his father David. And he rules and reigns with such righteousness and justice, and peace will be experienced in all the land. And people will come from far and wide to see the light of the Savior who now sits and occupies the throne. And for us as believers, guess what? It's not just something that all of a sudden we just get to see the Lord in his majesty ruling and reigning on high in Jerusalem, but we will experience his rule and reign forever. And that light of the gospel, which began by him sending his own son, and, and, and you received the repentance and faith, it will be realized, and you will see him, and you will love him, and your hope will be renewed, and your joy will be, be forever experienced in the life to come. If you're here this morning, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and it seems like a bunch of nonsense and fairy tales to you, the inspired word of God, the God of heaven left the truth of the gospel written through the works of these men that were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. These were not just the words of men, these were the words of the God Almighty who in his own zeal for justice and righteousness, he will accomplish this. But if you wait and you don't repent of your sins, you will be forever separated from him for eternity. And you will never see the light until that spiritual darkness is lifted. And he has come to save you and to send his son so that you could be redeemed. I pray that as we go into this particular season of celebration and into our upcoming this is the preempt to the actual series for next week because we're going to start these four names of the character of God. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. That has to mean something to us. It meant something to Isaiah. Isaiah wanted it to mean something to the people that he was speaking to so that they would see this one who was coming is the only one who could fulfill all the things that their heart longed for and experience the peace that they could ever have. So as you come, I would encourage you this week, begin to start celebrating already, even though we're not to December yet, right? We're on the on-ramp and we're there. Start looking into the prophets this week. What did they tell of this one coming Messiah? And next week, as we get together and we study this character, this name that is associated with this one, the wonderful counselor, begin to contemplate and reflect in your own mind. What kind of wonderful counselor is this God? How does he come and give me the kind of truth that I need to hear? And are you listening to him who is the wonderful counselor to you? Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much. For the words of Isaiah, the prophet, who is willing to come and say, here am I, send me. Lord, that these truths 
and the hope that you give to us through Isaiah would not escape our attention of the multiplicity of passages that speak of the coming Messiah who would come and rule and reign with justice and righteousness and bring peace. Lord, it's your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for his incarnation that made salvation possible because he was the perfect lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. Lord, help us to celebrate as we move into this season the truths of your word. In your name we pray, amen.